Let's get started. Okay, so we are doing uh, Malbim on Mishle. Mishle is the book of Proverbs. Malbim is the rabbi from the 1800s who wrote the commentary. Um, and actually, I have to tell you guys an HP story. So for those of you who are not familiar with HP stands for Hashgacha Pratit, which means divine intervention. Um, so also HP can also mean higher power, but it's like stories that sort of show God's hand in our lives in the kind of mind-blowing way. So um, when we went to New York this past week for my nephew's bar mitzvah, we stayed at my brother's house. And my sister-in-law is a teacher as well. She teaches high school kids and she's also a Torah teacher. And, you know, we're, we're schmoozing about her teaching and my teaching and hi, Robin. Um, hi. And she was telling me that she also teaches the book of Proverbs to her high school kids. I said, oh my gosh, how do you teach it? What do you use? And she's like, well, the teacher before me left me her notes. And that's what I'm using. She's like, what do you use? I said, well, I'm using this book, Malbim on Mishle. She's like, wow, really? And you just like teach it out of the book. And I'm like, yeah, it's amazing. And the commentary is so like contemporary and it's so applicable to our daily lives. So she's like, really? Oh my gosh, I should look into using that resource. And I'm like, yes, you should. And so she starts, she she was looking it up in the original in the Hebrew. We, we of course, use the English. Um, and she's, she's like, oh my gosh, Ruhi, you changed my life. This is how I'm going to be teaching it from now on. It's amazing. Thank you. And I, she was like, I feel like I'm really going to enjoy teaching it so much more now because I have like a plan and a path. And and she's like, and you've done it. I'm like, yeah, we're like more than halfway done with the book. And like, you know, we've been doing it this way. So anyway, it was very exciting to be able to kind of collaborate with her that way. So that was really cool. Um, And yes, so that was a great HP story. And I want to welcome Debbie. Um, and the, and Debbie, um, I want to study in the merit for a refuah shalema, complete recovery for Debbie's mother, um, Yehudit Bat Devora, I believe. Yes, Debbie, did I get that right? Hold on, let me look it up. Because yes, Yehudit Bat Devora, she should have a complete recovery. Okay, let's get started. So we are on chapter seventeen verse 24 and for those of you who are following along in my version of the book which thankfully i now have um we are on page 184 all right here we go 24 um at so we were talking last time about bribes and about how bribes um, pervert the way a person thinks and does not allow them to be objective. Okay, so we're continuing here. At Peneme Vin Chachma, wisdom is before him who has understanding. So this word in Hebrew, Mevin, right? It means somebody who has understanding. Bina is the Hebrew word for understanding. So a Mevin is someone who has understanding. Now, some of you may be familiar with the Yiddish word, a Mevin, right? It comes from this word. It comes from this Hebrew word, mevin, someone who has understanding. So the word mevin has um, come to mean someone who has expertise in a particular area because they have understanding, see? So you guys, besides for learning Proverbs, you're also learning Hebrew and Yiddish. So you're getting a very well-rounded education here on Thursdays. Okay, at Pnei Mevin Chachma, wisdom is before him who has understanding. The enik seal but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. All right, so what we're talking about here is how close or far wisdom is to a person, right? That sometimes we feel like wisdom is very far, very out of reach. 
very hard to access. And other times we feel that it's accessible. We can reach it. We can we can touch it. Like if we're having a moral dilemma, we can sort of reach into the archives of our minds with the wisdom that we've studied and we can tap into it and reach out to it, right? And pull it. And other times we feel like we're groping in the dark and it's so far away, okay? So here we're talking about the person who has understanding, wisdom is right before him. It's like right in front of his face, right? But the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth, right? But for somebody who, um, who is foolish, who acts foolish, who acts in a very, um, you know, unwise way, right? So to that person, wisdom is going to seem like a million miles away. Like it's all the way at the ends of the earth. Okay. Um, welcome A. I don't know your first name. Hi, Adina. Hi. Oh, it's enough. All right. So let's read the commentary to see what this means. Like when, when is the wisdom so close we can touch it? And when does it feel a million miles away? Uh, right. And like I've said many times, even though many of these verses describe po prototypes, right? The wise person, this, the foolish person, this, the righteous person, this, the wicked person, that, but really we know that all of these characters and different versions of these characters all live inside of us and they all take up space within our personality, right? So at any given time, we're picking out this aspect of our personality or that aspect of our personality. So, right. So it's easy to say, oh yeah, I know somebody nuts like that. But really what we're trying to do here is to identify the nut job within our minds, right? And take that personality to task. Okay. Hi, Tammy. Good to see you. All right. Here's a commentary. Bottom of page 184. Moral wisdom is close to a man's spiritual nature so long as he has not defiled his nature with lawless desires. So, there are two important principles in that sentence. The first one is that whether we have easy access to wisdom or not is largely up to us, that we have the ability to make that determination. How? With how we behave. Meaning that when we behave appropriately and we make good choices and we have positive encounters in our lives, we've chosen well, right? Then it's like a regular cleaning of our windows and we'll be able to see clearly, we'll be able to see clarity. But, and this is why I think it's related to the verse before it about bribes. It's almost like when you do something negative, you bribe yourself. Why? Because the natural state of the human mind is confirmation bias. We want to put a stamp of approval on that which we are already doing. That is the natural drive of a human being, okay? So when we've done something wrong, our natural desire is to figure out a way to make it make sense. And therefore, we are muddying our windows. We're making it harder to see clearly, right? And we tell ourselves lies. We tell ourselves, it's not that big of a deal. A lot of people do things a lot worse. Nobody will know. I'm not hurting anybody, right? And all of these things are justifications to allow ourselves to continue to do the things that we already wanted to do. So whether we see wisdom clearly or not clearly will largely depend on the choices we've previously made and what our brains feel compelled to justify or not justify. Okay, so 
the, the, the two truths that are packed into this sentence is that number one, whether we see clearly or not is largely up to us. And number two, and this is a very interesting one, is that behaving badly will muddy our lens of wisdom. Okay, I'll repeat that. Behaving badly will muddy the lens of our wisdom. Let's just use an example. Let's just say that you were feeling frustrated and you got angry at somebody, okay? And you you just sniped at somebody. You just, you said something short or curt or rude that you didn't have to say shortly or curtly or rudely, okay? Because you were angry. You were angry about something else. You were frustrated about something else. So now if somebody comes along and says to you, oh my gosh, you totally overreacted, right? You will feel the urge to defend your behavior. Even if you knew while you were doing it, that you shouldn't do it. Even if you knew while you were doing it that you weren't proud of it, yet you will still you will still feel an urge to defend the thing that you have already done. That means that your bad behavior muddied your morality lens. And we have to know that. We have to know that as a fact. Okay, that's the first sentence. Let's continue. One can indeed look at wisdom through the reflection of his own self, as it were, it's like looking in a mirror and seeing our own true nature looking back at us for the essence of our spiritual being is stamped with moral wisdom, meaning wisdom really isn't that far from you. You know why? Because you came into this world born and equipped with a godly soul and your godly soul is like the black box of wisdom that lives inside you always and that will outlive you. So all you really have to do, obviously, this is deceptively simple, but all you really have to do is check in with your inborn de facto moral compass that came with you from the factory, already installed into your hard drive, right? All you got to do, I'm putting that in air quotes, all you got to do is check in with that morality barometer and say, hey, soul, knock, knock. What you thinking? Thumbs up or thumbs down, right? And your soul will know. Yeah, no, I'm not feeling so, you know, excited about this behavior. Or yeah, you know what? Go for it, right? The problem is that A, we forget to check in with our soul. We forget that we have a soul. Or the road to our soul is muddy because of our previous behaviors and all of the justifications and rationalizations that are buzzing, buzzing, buzzing in our heads that are blocking entry to the soul. But really, it's literally right there. You can touch it. One who has corrupted his nature with forbidden passions, however, has a mirror that has rusted as it were, right? It's like your mirror got rusty, right? Do you ever have a situation where you're looking in the mirror and you're like, what, is that me? Or is that my mirror? Is there, is there a spot there? Is, is Or is that me? No, I'm sorry to tell you, that's you, <laughs> right? But sometimes the mirror is bad or the lighting is bad or something else is wrong. You, you could take a picture on your phone. Did you guys ever order like a case for your phone and it it's like the wrong model and it covers your camera and all your pictures come out wonky, right? So there's nothing wrong with the camera, just something's covering it. Right. So um, our forbidden passions, it's like our the mirror got rusted. It is encrusted with dirt and can no longer reflect truly. 
He will see wisdom as something alien and inaccessible at the ends of the earth. So this reminds me of two things. Thing number one, this reminds me of the story of Rabbi Akiva. So Rabbi Akiva, before he was Rabbi Akiva, he was just plain old Akiva. And he was a very simple, ignorant shepherd. He did not begin to study Torah. Some of you know this story until he was 40 years old. And, you know, he met his wife, Rachel, and she really believed in him. And she saw that he had potential and her father disowned her and the whole story. Fine. The, but Rabbi, what Rabbi Akiva said about himself is that while he was ignorant, if he ever saw a Torah scholar, he would say that he wished he could bite him and kick him. He felt so venomous towards Torah scholars. Why? Because he had so he had such a complicated relationship to wisdom. He didn't have it. He felt ignorant. He felt dumb. He he knew he wasn't behaving or you know, acting the way he should or actualizing his potential. So it came out as this anger geared towards the role models that he would eventually aspire to become and eventually would become. His morality mirror was rusty. And what he had to do was he had to utilize his Torah study to clean it off to polish that mirror, right? Or like I like to say, Musar is about polishing your inner diamond, right? So a lot of times when we feel angry feelings, venomous feelings, envious feelings, resentful feelings, it's time to check in with ourselves and ask ourselves, what is this crusty film over my window that is bringing up all this negativity, because if I could figure that out, then I could figure out a way to clean it and I could figure out something to do about it. The second thing this reminds me of is um, I was listening to a podcast this morning by Rabbi Shlomo Farhi, who I know Stacy likes to listen to as well. He's a Sephardi rabbi from New York and he's so good. Um, and he was talking about judgment at this time of year. So he he sort of painted this whole image. Um, how did he say it on the podcast? He says, some of you are not going to like this because it's too, oh, trippy. <laughs> That's the word he used. He's like, some of you are not going to like this because it's too trippy. I, I happen to have loved it. So maybe I'm just a trippy girl. I don't know. But anyways, he tells the story. He's like, you know, people always think like, oh, how are we going to be judged? How are we going to be judged? So he shared this teaching from the Talmud, which is very oft quoted this time of year, which I've quoted before. Kolamavir Anybody who forgives his own urges and drives, in heaven, they forgive all his sins. Meaning, if you are willing to forego your judgment and your perfection bar for everybody, then God will be willing to forego being judgmental on you and will forego his perfection bar, so to speak, on you. So he says, imagine it this way. You get to heaven and it's time for your court case, Right. And they say, okay, he, he was using his own name. He's like, okay, you know, he he called himself as though he were getting an Aliyah. Yamod, Shlomo, stand up, you know, get up. It's your turn. So he says, so I walk up to the court and I walk up to the, you know, jury box and they're going to show me who the jury is. And I look at the jury and he says, instead of 12 angry men, I see 12 Shlomo Farhis. <laughs> and they're all staring at me. And the judge reads out loud what I did wrong. And now it's the jury's job to judge me. 
how will the jury judge me? Well, it's 12 of me. So they're going to judge me the way I judged my whole life. Was I super particular that everybody do everything right all the time? And if they didn't, I call them out on it or I make them feel bad for it. Or am I forgiving and foregoing? And do I say stuff like, that's okay. It's not a big deal. We'll figure it out. Maybe next time. Because me, me is my jury. Now, I thought I was listening to this podcast while shopping at Costco. <laughs> and I'm standing there in the ketchup aisle. And I'm just standing there stock still listening to this trippy image in my head. And I'm like, that's actually mind boggling, right? Because what our verse is telling us is that the way you act will affect how you see and access wisdom, right? And it reminded me of what Rabbi Fari was saying, which is basically whatever you do that you, you are building the house you will live in. Do you want to live in the house that you built? If you built a house full of judgment and particularism and perfectionism, do you really, do you want to live in that house, right? If you want to live in a house where you're lying, to, if you build a house where you're lying to yourself, do you want to live in a house where you're lying to yourself, where people are lying, with, with that, that person being you? I think it's such a powerful image this time of year, right? A lot of times we think of Judaism like, well, I do this and then God will do that right? Like it's this patriarchal relationship. Like me and God, we're totally separate. Like I'm the citizen and God is the police officer. I'm the kid and God is the parent. I'm the student and God is the principal, right? I'm the little underling and, and, you know, in the office and God is the big, bad CEO. That's not how it works at all. We are the ones building the edifice that we live in. God is just facilitating the process. He's like, what he said, Rabbi Fari, he's like, life is just a mirror. Life will just mirror back to you what you put into it. So ask yourself, do you want to be judged by you? Do you want to be judged by a jury of you? Are you keeping your lenses clean, right? So that the way you look at the world will be wise. So then act wise. Because when you act wise, you'll be able to access wisdom. Hold on, I'm just closing the door. Okay, so thoughts, comments, questions on verse 24. Okay, anyone? I did have, um, I, I kind of lost my train of thought a little bit, but earlier when you were talking about confirmation bias, and I was sort of thinking about how a repetitive act really feeds into that. I, I wish I could remember exactly what I was thinking, but just thinking that I think that is often what happens. People tell themselves they're right by doing it over and over, mm -hmm. getting away with it and doing it over. And I don't know if that leads confirmation bias. Yeah, it, it's interesting you mentioned that. So I was listening to a different podcast, which I don't remember anymore what I say in which class, because I teach a number of classes throughout the week. Did I mention in this group about, um, 
1840 podcast on infidelity. Okay, I'm going to link it in the in the WhatsApp chat um, about so this there's this rabbi rabbi David Bashevkin. I know I've, I think I've mentioned his podcast before. Super, super fascinating guy. I, I just love all of his stuff. He actually wrote a book called Synagogue, S-I-N. It's a study of failure in Judaism. Uh, it's, I haven't read it through, but it's, what I've seen is amazing. Anyway, every year before Rosh Hashanah, he does a teshuva theme on his podcast, right? About repentance and renewal and coming back from mistakes. So a number of years ago, I, I don't know, maybe it was two years ago, I told you guys about his podcast um, where he interviewed a gentleman who had spent, a, a Jewish guy who had spent time in prison. And he talked about repentance from that perspective. So this year he interviewed a man who had been cheating on his wife for 10 years and has now repented from it. He's divorced. Um, but he, you know, it's completely anonymous and he alters his voice and therefore he tells his story very authentically and very honestly. Personally, I think it is a must listen for various reasons. Um, but one of the things that you just said, Robin, that reminded me of this podcast is because in the interview, so the first half is very long. I think it's two hours. The first half of it is in why. Why is Siri talking to me? Stop it. Um, the first half is an interview with this guy who had been cheating with on his wife for 10 years. Um, and the second part of it is um, an interview with a woman, I forgot her name, who wrote her PhD dissertation on infidelity. And one of the things she did was she interviewed a huge range of couples, some of whom were Orthodox Jews, because this guy who he interviewed is an Orthodox Jew, which is part of what made it so interesting. Like, how could he reconcile his life of supposed morality with the many, many, many indiscretions and mistakes and bad things that he did? So that was very interesting. Um, David Beshevkin, I'm going to type the name of his podcast here. Anyway, um, one of the things that came up in the interview was he, one of them quoted a, a, a teaching from the Talmud, I believe, where he said that when a person does something really bad, he's like the first time you do it. And this is what you were saying, Robin, about like repeatedly doing the wrong thing. The first time you do it, you're completely outraged at yourself. And the Talmud says the second time you do it, it becomes to him as though it is permitted. Right. Which is basically the Talmud describing confirmation bias. Right. That you you have a need for your brain to figure out a way to make it OK so that you can live with yourself. Right. It's fascinating. Anyway, I, I highly recommend the the listen, even though it is long. I listened to it over a few days. Um, but as, as I said, I will I will share that with you. OK. Any other thoughts or comments on 24? Ruchi, it made me think um, the fact that we're being judged by the way we live our life, you know, direct a little bit in correlation. It made me think about your story when you um, behaved in a certain way to somebody that was kind of rude in like a doctor's office or something that you were taking one of your kids to. Yes. And and just, you know, how how you act, you know, affects obviously another, but then just taking it more internally, you know, how we act affects ourselves. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Very true. Yeah. It, it really is kind of amazing how powerfully our actions impact our brains. 
because we always think of it the other way. Our brains impact our actions, right? But our actions also impact our brains. Okay. 25. Um, a foolish son is vexation to his father. Umemer liolatato and bitterness to her who bore them. So this is a commentary about a child who behaves foolishly, right? Which I think that's a redundancy. <laughs> um, and how aggravating that will be to his father and how bitter that will be to his mother. Okay. So we are talking here literally about a child and a parent. Okay. As, as the commentary says, Apart from grieving his father with his degraded way of life, a foolish son also angers him because his wife suffers, meaning the mother will suffer when the child, excuse me, when the children behave badly. Right. And of course, that's upsetting to his father or because he is forever quarreling with her over the son. And this is a very, very common dynamic that happens in parenting, right, where a child is going through a difficult time, whether it's emotionally or psychologically or religiously or, you know, behaviorally, and the parents will find themselves arguing over and over again about how to handle the situation. And it's really, it's a big strain on the marriage, right? So what, what it's saying is that this, this child who's misbehaving is giving his father so much grief, A, because he's not behaving, B, because the mother is upset, and C, because now he, he and his wife are arguing over this kid, right? So that is true on a literal level. But there's also a metaphorical story going on here, which is we, the children, we vex God, so to speak, when we don't behave ourselves. Why? Because God put us down in this earth with so many opportunities and so many gifts and so many blessings and the capacity to do so much good, right? It's like, it's like exactly the way we feel, you know, parents feel when they try to put so much into their kids and they're like, come on, like I gave you the sun, moon and stars. I gave, I gave you every opportunity and every advantage. And I gave you love and I gave you, you know, a comfortable home. And I just want you to succeed. And we find it so frustrating. Like, when our kids don't succeed. So too, like when God looks at us, right? And he's like, so to speak, but I gave you everything. I gave you so much. I just want you to succeed. Like, you know, sometimes we think, oh, God is angry at us. It's not angry at us. God is so frustrated with us because we have so much potential for good. And when we're not actualizing that potential, it's like, God is like, oh, come on, really? Do you even understand how amazing you are? Do you even understand how far you could go in this world? You just don't believe in yourself. You know, like if there's one thing I could have told my kids when they were going through their difficult years, I would have said like, could you just believe in yourself that you could be so much, you know? So now imagine God saying that to you, like, this isn't you. You have this limitless potential. You could be so great. Why would you settle for second best? I, I, I love you so much. I wish you could see you how I see you. Right. Stacy. I was just listening to another podcast before we took, before we signed on here and the gist of the story, because I'm not a good storyteller, but um, he said something about there's a guy who's like 
he didn't take care of himself. He was not very, I don't know, whatever he did in his life, it wasn't his potential. And so when he goes in front of God, he says, um, he says, imagine you go to God and you give your name and God says, you're a Navy SEAL, you know, oh, you, you're with the Navy SEAL and you did all of these wonderful things in your life. And then the guy says back to God, no, that's not me. I'm just this guy. Mm -hmm. And God's response was, um, yes, but that's who you were supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have heard it said that the shame of the shame that a person is at risk of experiencing in the next world is when they perceive how large was the gap between who they could have been and who they actually were. Again, it's not about angering God or something like that. It's about our own disappointment in ourselves that we didn't perceive how great we could be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Ariel asked a question, does self-doubt come from the Yetzer Hara? And I would say 100% yes. And I would also say, how do you know when something comes from the Yetzer Hara, which is the negative voice inside your head? When it takes you further away from your goals for yourself, right? So if there is a voice of self-doubt that makes you say, I don't know, I, I don't know, I can't really do that. I can't really be that. That's too far away from me. I'm not. Then that is your voice. Then you know that's the voice of your Yitzhahara because it has taken you further away from accomplishing who you could be. So that's how you know. If it's making you feel depressed, discouraged, disconnected, disappointed, disillusioned, then you know that that's the voice of your Yitzhahara. Okay. Any other comments on 25? Let us continue with, okay, 26 through 28 is a unit, and that is the end of our chapter. So let's see if we'll finish today. 26. It is also not good to punish a righteous man, nor to smite the generously noble for their uprightness. Okay, so here we're saying what seems to be fairly obvious, okay? right? You know that expression, no good deed goes unpunished. Okay. So we're trying to say like, don't punish a good person for his good deeds, right? And don't punish the noble people for their uprightness. Okay. So far, so good. 27. He who has knowledge restrains his words. A man of discernment will calm his spirit. Okay. So now we're talking about using our words, restraining our words to retain our wisdom. And finally, 28, even a skeptic, when he keeps silent, will be reckoned wise. One who shuts his lips is deemed a man of understanding. Okay, so first we're talking about not punishing the righteous for their good deeds. And now we seem to be talking about the value and the virtue of silence of remaining silent, okay? All right, so let's let's get to the commentary to figure out what this is teaching us. 
it seems obviously not good that the Almighty should, this is um, on the bottom of page 185. It seems obviously not good that the Almighty should punish a righteous man or smite the generously noble, right? This is the age-old complaint and problem of the suffering of the righteous, right? Many people have asked this question. Why did Abraham have to live such a difficult life and suffer so many things? You could look at many wonderful people in this world and ask yourself, why do good people suffer? And why, why, for that matter, why do the righteous prosper, right? This is an age-old question that every philosopher and theologian has discussed. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? Sherry, do you remember many years ago, Heather, maybe you'll remember this as well. We had a panel discussion at Sunday school. Yes. Sherry, you were on our panel and we right. had two panelists. Do you remember, Sherry, the takeaway? There was one really powerful takeaway from that session. Am I on mute? No, you're good. I remember saying it's not why do pe uh, good people suffer. Uh, it's not why do bad happen to good people. It's why do all of us suffer in certain ways and have pain? Yep. The way, the way I remember, I don't remember if it was you or one of the other panelists phrasing it was, it's not why do bad things happen to good people. It's why do challenging things happen to all people? Yeah. Yeah, it was a really, right. really powerful session. Thank you again for doing that. But this is the age old question. In fact, Moses himself asked the question. He said in, in, in the book of Psalms, Moses is quoted as saying, um, a fool cannot understand this. An unwise person can't comprehend this. When wicked people flourish like grass. And evildoers seem to bloom everywhere. It's hard to understand, right? So there are, you know, insights in Judaism to deal with this question. But the bottom line is that on some level, everybody has been plagued by this question, all right? We look around the world and we're like, you know, if anybody has ever said, it's not fair, if anybody has ever said those words, right? That's what you were expressing. There doesn't seem to be justice in this world because why do the good guys seem to finish last and the bad guys seem to get ahead? To this, our text replies that he who has knowledge restrains his words and asks nothing, okay? For he knows the Almighty bestows his providential care in absolute perfection without any injustice. So I do have to give like a caveat here that what King Solomon is describing in these verses is like an unspeakably high level of faith, which to be perfectly frank, I do not possess. I am not on the level a lot of things in this book, I am not on the level. And this is one example. I am not on a level of keeping my mouth shut when I feel this sense of injustice. I'm not. I do. I do open my mouth and I do say, I don't understand. Like, I might not say it in public. I just say it, you know, to my husband or to a close friend. But I will say things like, I don't understand why Hashem is doing this to me. I, this doesn't make sense to me. This is so confusing to me. I do. Okay, so we're talking here, the the not asking, it, it's a high bar. He Hence, he we're on page 186 in the commentary. Hence, he will neither probe nor speak out, though it be beyond his ken. Meaning this really righteous person 
who is not me, will not question God even when he doesn't understand God's ways. We have an example of this in the Torah. Aaron, who is Moses's brother and a very righteous first leader in his own right, two of his sons died because on the day of the inauguration of the tabernacle, which was the portable temple in the desert, they brought an unauthorized offering and the two of them died on the spot. And the Torah describes Aaron's reaction by saying, Vayidom Aharon, Aaron was silent. And the Talmud and the commentaries highly praise Aaron for this degree of acceptance of God's will. Now, there's a reason that Aaron was Aaron, okay? Because most of us are not on a level of responding in that way. But that is an ideal, very evolved way to react or not react. A man of understanding indeed comprehends it. It is to punish the righteous in this world for some sin so they may receive their reward unalloyed in the hereafter. So here the commentary is offering a possible reason why it seems that righteous people suffer in this world. And that is because whatever small things they may have done wrong in this world, God wants to kind of clean up their slate in this world. So pay your dues here. Why? So that when you get to the next world, which is eternal and which really matters, you'll be able to enter that world free and clear. Hence, he calms the inner spirit. So these ideas will calm him down to raise no storm about it. Should, however, even a skeptic who doubts and disputes everything keeps his tongue from wagging about this question, meaning let's say you have a person who's not keeping silent because they're trying to understand God's ways, right? They really are annoyed and they really have a lot of questions, not like not in a I sincerely desire to understand kind of way, but in an I'm going to tear down everything wholly because I don't understand kind of way, Right. So if this person still manages to keep his mouth shut, he will be reckoned wise, right? It's still smarter to keep your mouth shut. Even if you're thinking heretical thoughts, it's still better to stay quiet and not express them out loud. For he is thus acting according to the laws of moral wisdom, whatever his inner doubts. And if he shuts his lips completely, right? Like it says at the end of the verse, one who shuts his lips is deemed a man of understanding, uttering not a murmur, even in his superficial talk. So that means if, even if you're really, really, really struggling with it, but you manage to keep quiet, he will be thought the man of discernment of the previous verse. Okay, now I have to tell you something. I personally don't think that this level is necessarily one that we should all aspire to reach. And I'll tell you why. None of us are in that category of like a wicked person who's trying to tear down all that's holy and to make fun, you know, of the concepts of Judaism. And sometimes if we feel like we cannot ask those questions or we cannot express our angst or our confusion, it can make us feel even further away from God. So I am going to suggest to this group you know, and frankly, to me too, right? When I do have these questions, 
we should be selective and careful how we express them and who we express them to. We want to make sure that we're expressing our questions in a way that is productive and constructive, meaning I need to release my feelings of anguish. I need to gain wisdom and understanding. I need somebody to help me see things in a more therapeutic way. So I'm asking, I'm asking my questions or expressing my doubts in a way that is constructive and productive, as opposed to just arguing or making fun of, or, you know, God. God forbid, like dissing God and want wisdom and we want to become more wise. And even when we're feeling angry, frustrated, rebellious, confused by God's ways, let's try to channel the ways of wisdom and be careful about how we say, to whom we say, and why we say what we say, so that it can bring us closer to wisdom and understanding and not, God forbid, further away from it. Ariel. And this is like a perfect segue always had like it with my patients of you know I'm seeing the worst of humanity and you know why are these things happening to people right but in nursing school they actually taught us to not ask why questions because when you ask why questions you put the person that you're asking in a place to defend themselves so when you question why is Hashem doing this well now you're putting Hashem in a place where he has to defend himself but when you have Amuna and you have this faith that you're talking about and you in that place where you need to keep your mouth shut, instead of asking, why is Hashem doing this? Rephrasing the question, what made Hashem want to do this? How did my behavior make Hashem do this to me? You know, all the other question words that aren't why so that you aren't asking that question word that's putting Hashem in a defensive spot. And it's something that we use with patients all the time. Yeah. Like we don't ask patients why questions. Like, for example, like, you know, what was going on right before you got here? Who called the ambulance? Not why did you come to the emergency room? Because now, like, it puts a person in an uncomfortable spot if you hmm. ask the question like that. That's so interesting. Thank you for sharing that perspective. Of course. Very, very interesting. Yeah. Okay, any other thoughts or reflections on the end of our chapter? Um, Rochi, did Ariel, who was just speaking? Ariel. Ariel, um, to go along with what she was saying, um, I was reading Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. I, I read like his Parsha thing. And I just remember, I mean, this was weeks ago, but it, it really hit me. It was saying that there's really two responses to when something bad happens and the the society that says um it's somebody else's fault is never going to thrive huh. because they've given away all their power therefore they have no way of getting it back because the whole fault lies with somebody else and the, therefore that other entity has all the power so that he was just like either your response is why is this happening and what can I do to change it? Um, and that society has a much better chance of thriving than this is your fault 
And right. all the reasons why we're being held back is because it's your fault. So anyway, I was thinking that That's when you were thought. saying that, um, wait, I'm trying to remember my thoughts that, oh, when someone's behaving badly and uh, they're, you know, doing mental gymnastics to try and make it okay, I think to just say like, because um, like we're entitled to this or whatever, that's just never a good response. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It reminds me of something I heard once about the Hebrew word lama, which means why, mm -hmm. and that we can reconstruct that word to mean lama, which means for what purpose. Mm, I love that. So, right. So when we find ourselves saying like, why, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? Or why is God doing this to me? Instead, if we could ask ourselves for what purpose did God do this to me? Right. Then we can redirect it to a more constructive place instead of like, like you were saying, Ariel, this why question, which is just a purposeless defensive type of question that doesn't, you know, produce uh, helpful responses usually. Okay. So ladies, I want to wish you the traditional blessing this time of year is Gemar Hatimatova, which means the conclusion, the sealing of our, um, you know, we in, on Rosh Hashanah, we say we're written in the book of life and God willing on Yom Kippur, we are sealed. So the conclusion of the sealing should be good. Gemar Hatimatova. I hope that everyone has a Shabbat Shalom and a meaningful and inspirational and um, productive Yom Kippur where we are, all, um, we all merit to have a clean slate and to be able to enter, God willing, a beautiful, happy, healthy new year with a light heart and a fresh start. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thanks for joining, Basia. Oh, thank you for having me. Wow. Thanks. It was amazing. Thank you. Bye, Bye everybody. Um, Good to bye. see you all. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom.